Tales of Terror. This is Conducting Business, WQXR's show about the classical music industry. I'm Naomi Lewin. If you've ever had to speak or perform in public, you know the feeling. Pounding heart, trembling hands, maybe even nausea. Some very famous people have famously suffered from stage fright, including Vladimir Horowitz, Franco Corelli, Barbara Streisand, even Frederick Chopin. These days, musicians are discovering new methods for coping with bad cases of butterflies. Everything from meditation to medication. In the studio with me is Diane Nichols, a psychotherapist who calms a stage fright class in Juilliard's evening division. In a moment, we will talk with a violinist who has just won an orchestra job after taking beta blockers. But first, Liev Jurbin is on the phone. He is a violist and composer who goes by Liova and performs in various ensembles, including his own group, Liova and the Contraband. Diane, I'm going to start with you. Okay. A study last year from the University of Paderborn in Germany found that nearly a third of all orchestra musicians suffer from stage fright. 13% of them said it was severe, but nobody talks about it very much. Why is that? Well, I mean, other studies have said 34%. Okay. So, but the reason people don't talk about it is because it would affect your opportunities. I mean, how seriously are somebody going to look at you if they're auditioning you? if they know you have a history of choking or of panicking. That's one reason. Well, there's a difference between stage fright and not coming through and doing the job and talking about it, but it's really that debilitating? Well, no, that's their perception. They don't want to I be see. seen in that way, okay? But it is. it can be very debilitating, particularly in auditions. So they don't want to be seen, you know, that way, not among their peers either. Leova... How many of your peers, your fellow musicians, do you think experience stage fright? When I when I was a, a classical musician, this is definitely when I played a lot of classical music. This is definitely something we talked about. Increasingly, as I play more contemporary music and I play more world music and improvised music, this is not really something that comes in. You're not playing a piece of music that everybody's heard before. You're playing something that nobody knows or something that very few people know, and that's something that you know that you have an integral part in creating. When I was playing with the Absolute Ensemble, the Chris Giafanidis Bassoon Concerto, and I was uh, the violist in the Absolute Ensemble in Merkin Concert Hall, and there's just that such moment where there's a big crescendo, and afterwards there is a big drop. And I remember this very clearly sitting on the stage in Merkin Concert Hall. After, we, after this drop, I'm supposed to come in and play this really soft, really high note, and I remember in the concert just freaking out and not playing. Okay, so how did you cure yourself of stage fright? I, when I was a, a student at Juilliard, I, wrote, I went to the school psychologist's office, and we talked about it for a couple of sessions. And, you know, it all boiled down to my love life, of course, which, you know, freshman year at Juilliard, life, uh, love life is, you know, nil to very buried to whatever. And uh, the psychologist offered, uh, he said, you could take better blockers or, you know, I don't think you should do that. And he said, you know, bananas are good, relaxation is good. All of those things are good. And I think for me, what really worked is an advice I got from Cynthia Phelps, the principal violist of the Philharmonic, when I was practicing for my Juilliard audition before I even got there. And her advice was, you really have to own the piece. And I've become much more about ownership. I've become heavily invested in the music that I play, much heavily invested in interpreting it and finding myself in it. 
And Okay, Diane, yes. how would you have treated Leova's stage fright? With bananas? No, <laughs> definitely not. Okay. Uh, I mean, I would think maybe 45% of musicians might have underlying conflicts. Okay, so that may have to do with shame or guilt or all kinds of things. But I think the first issue that one has to look at is how to help calm down the message from the brain. Okay, the am- amygdala says it's a red alert. It says flee or fight. And it doesn't reference your cortex in terms of reasoning. How else may I handle this? So there's many things to do in terms of preparation that people can do. There are important things to do where you don't project a critical judge onto the audience or the auditor. Um, It's very important that you actually do trust and own your own view Okay, you may be interpreting the Baroque or the classical, but you have to overlearn and you have to kind of quiet yourself. I find it fascinating that the fight or flight reflex kicks in for something that basically you love doing because you wouldn't be a musician if you didn't love doing this. Why is that? You know, ever since I, I finished school, I no longer have any fright. Maybe that has to do something because in school... Or if you're in an orchestra, you're being judged by the conductor. You're, you're, you know, you are there to interpret what the conductor wants, more or less. You know, ever so often you lose in a, in a performance. Ever so often you might lose concentration and think of other things, and you might think of external elements. You might think of all sorts of things that have nothing to do with the music, and it is at those points that you begin to fail a little bit. Are you more likely to have a memory slip then, or not? I don't know. <laughs> I, I, I know my music pretty well. So generally. that doesn't happen. Okay. Well, speaking of your music, Leofa, we're going to listen to a little bit of it now as oh. we say goodbye. And thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. Lev Leova Jobin is a violist, composer, and arranger. A question for you now listening to this podcast. Have you experienced stage fright in performances or public speaking? If so, how did you cope? Please go to wqxr.org and leave a comment on our website or leave a reaction to anything you hear in this podcast. We just heard from a string player who changed career direction in order to overcome stage fright. Now we will hear from one who took a more traditional route. Holly Mulcahy just won the job of concertmaster of the Chattanooga Symphony and Opera. She joins us from the Grand Teton Music Festival in Wyoming. Welcome, Holly. Thank you for having me. All right, so first of all, what are your issues with nerves in performance? Well, for auditions, it's important to kind of level the playing field, in my opinion, because you're walking into a situation where you're immediately being judged, and there's not a lot of time to get redos or... or, uh, People are making quick snap decisions. So for me, just having a little extra nerve-calming Enderol is, is an excellent way to showcase myself at my best. Enderol being a beta blocker. Correct. What sort of nerves, before we even get to the beta blockers, I want to know what is it exactly that gets in the way of your playing? It can quickly avalanche down from excellent playing to extreme shaking and rapid heartbeats and uh, just you, you just start to panic. So, Does this happen every time you play or mostly just for auditions? Or? I think it's just mostly auditions and sometimes not. just depends on the, you know, how badly you want the position and 
how serious the excerpt might be. There's a lot of fear factor. So if, if you can just kind of like calm that with one extra thing, you know, besides like breathing techniques and visualization, it's nice to get just one extra edge and to have it as an insurance policy that your bow won't shake during some quiet passage. It's a nice thing to have. And it, it's a much better choice than three gins, which I worked with a student at Juilliard who did that for her <laughs> three for gins, her jury. Yeah, <laughs> as in, in without the, the tonic. <laughs> yes, I mean, Indril is in and out of your system, you know, exactly. very, very in a couple of hours. So that, I understand you're wanting that edge and, and the security. How nerve wracking was it uh, to win this job? What was the process like? Actually, it wasn't as nerve wracking as some other auditions I've played. But that's my own personal trials with the concertmaster repertoire. I feel much more comfortable with those. And it was down to how many candidates? That's a tricky question. There was uh, about seven candidates in the finals. And uh, And what did the finals involve? The finals involved actually playing a concert. There were some interviews, both over dinner and with some board members. But there were some concertmaster solos in the actual playing round and so was the interval just for the performances, the actual performances, or also for the dinners? Just, no, okay. <laughs> not for the dinners. <laughs> um, for the dinners, actually, that was just gin. For the actual audition itself, the actual performance with the orchestra, the trial weeks, I did not take interval because I was, it was more of a familiar situation. That was blind, right? The, it was blind, yes, absolutely, from which the is bottom, important, yeah. yeah. Which, which means that they can't tell who it is behind a screen. The auditioners exactly, are on one side of a screen. and the finals. It's uh-huh. behind the screen. And, uh, you know, any kind of shake, you know, you can get eliminated. It's, it's, it's a lot of pressure to put on, on oneself. Do you feel differently when you're on Enderall and when you're not? Some musicians say that they feel a little bit more distant from the material. That is true. And I have found that if I decrease the amount that I take, it, adds, it, it balances nicely where there's still a little bit of edge, but I just I, maybe it's just knowing it's in my system that I'm, it allows me to <laughs> just think that I'm, yeah. I'm going to... I'm really glad it. that you do take it for things like auditions, but that you don't take it all the time because some people begin to rely on it. And well, I, I have a lot of colleagues that do, and they, they panic, and they're like, I, oh, my God, does anybody have Indian Interall? I, I'm about to go on stage, and I'm thinking this is really sad because you've just trained yourself that you can't play without it. <laughs> well, and I wanted to ask about that because I had a conversation with an orchestra performer friend yesterday who said Inderol is passed around in some locker rooms like candy and that some people will not go out and play, especially a stressful concert, without taking beta blockers. Have you ever found that? I have seen that in occasions. Um, I think that's more in younger, younger crowds. I this was not really a. This was a seasoned musician oh from a, wow. perf- a major <laughs> orchestra. But what's important in that is that you get the dosage that you get of Indoral is related to your weight, and so yes. you shouldn't just be taking anybody's prescription. I totally agree with that, that. and I also understand that it. Um, you've got to be, you know, checked out by a doctor to, because it does. While it doesn't have that many side effects. You can have some complications if you have deep depression issues. Right, that's true. Um, And some people have, if they take it all the time, they have nightmares, but that's not typical. Oh, wow. (laughs) So, Diane, do you actually recommend beta blockers, Enderol, for some of the people you work with? I'm trying to help them, you know, create 
other ways of working. But certainly, if you have a major audition, yes. And there are many musicians that would not have continued as professional musicians if they did not have a way to cope with this. Okay, they would have been chagrined, ashamed, and exposed, and they would have left the field. Holly, you mentioned some other strategies, did, like meditation, I think. Yes. Um, it, do you, is that also something you use? I do. I use like a breathing technique where you measure your heartbeat and you breathe like eight counts in with the heartbeat and then breathe eight counts out. And sometimes you can breathe eight counts in, hold your breath for a little while, breathe uh, eight counts out and hold it for a little while. And, and that seems to really center and focus. That does take a lot of practice. The reason that I use that and Enderol is there are certain components in stressful situations that just all of a sudden pop up, like in auditions where the committee might say, well, your audition now will be in the next building over, and you need to walk through um, some, some snow and, you know. We're talking a lot about beta blockers, which have been banned in some sports like golf, but not, not, apparently, in music. <laughs> not at all in music. Why are they banned some places, and um, why so prevalent in music? Well, they think that it's an ingredient that's put into your system that gives you either an advantage or changes the playing field. But you're not competing in the same way unless you're in an audition situation as a musician. Um, you know, you're really not in the same competitive environment. I guess it's like taking performance-enhancing drugs. So this is not considered a performance, this is a performance-leveling drug? (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's an anxiety-leveling drug. I mean, the visualization is very important because if it's very detailed, it's actually a form of deepening your grasp of the music and also your decisions that you're making in terms of what makes it personal for you. And that can steady you as well. All right, so I have a question for both of you. Because it is very difficult to get people to come forth and talk about this. Why are musicians so reluctant to talk about the use of something which is helping their performance, but it just seems to be a terrible stigma attached to it? I think there is a stigma, and I think that for beta blockers, it's unfairly and, and quite wrong to call it a performing enhancing drug. I have been on certain auditions or certain concerts where... I have used beta blockers, and you can still lose concentration. It doesn't help your concentration. It doesn't help your confidence. Um, all it does is it, it keeps the shakes down and it keeps the panic to a, a minimal level. And people also don't like admitting that they need help like that. For the first few years of auditioning right out of conservatory, I did not take beta blockers because I thought that I was too proud to need assistance. But then when I'd get to the finals, of these orchestra auditions, and I wouldn't be winning. The people that would be winning were the ones that had the beta blockers. So, you know, you just it's a decision that you have yeah. to make. Yeah, I, I think that it is a decision, but I think important to use it, but often let it go so that you know you're all right and you're strong and you're capable without it because a dependency that's emotional develops. But there are many other ways to approaching, you know, anxiety. I worked with a Chinese student who... Actually, no longer is it so true, but parents were so set on this person, you know, having this career that he didn't even have a friend until he was 12, okay? And he actually, you know, followed his teacher somewhere and developed friendship. So developing as a human being 
as well as an artist or a musician is very important. And what he told me was that he could play sad music terrifically, but he had tremendous anxiety whenever he tried to play joyful music. Hmm. So how much would you say beta blockers are used as compared to things like alcohol, the gin factor, or marijuana? They've, they've replaced, I think, cocaine. You know, I think marijuana users may still use marijuana, but there's a big question of whether you have the same technical proficiency if you're using marijuana. But I think, I think it's replaced, you know, gin, and I think cocaine is just if people use it, they use it. It's <laughs> not a matter of their performance. So is that... Holly, what is your experience playing in orchestras? I don't come across a lot of people using alcohol as much as I've seen in, in uh, previous decades. My teacher, some of my teachers back in my conservatory days would gladly car- carry around a flask of scotch and take it before they would go on stage. But I don't see that in, in, in any of the orchestras that I've played in as of recently. Generally, when, when there are nerves involved, people just they, they talk about it or they might have a beta blocker, but I don't really see the alcohol or the drugs. Um, and that's a progression, though, that they do share and talk about it. It used to be hidden in that sense. Were there other things that you think are helpful? Did you ever have any underlying conflicts, either about succeeding or about failing or com- competition or shame well, or guilt? That, that whole self-doubt thing is a different component, and no beta blocker will fix that. That that comes with, I think, more visualizing and confidence building and positive reassurance and Nothing can fix that but inner fixings, you know, working on it inwardly. Do you know very many people anymore that use psychotherapy, or do you think people have moved away from psychotherapy as they've used beta blockers? I think people still, you know, work on their their psychotherapy. I, I think it's a very important thing. This is a very emotional field, and, you know, you take things personally, and you, you're extremely critical of yourself. It's important to constantly work on maintaining a positive attitude and confidence level without getting cocky. But One thing I think is important, um, do you find that musicians, I was telling our interviewer here, that, that after a performance when they're congratulated, that is not they're usually often their assessment of, of what they played. They're critical of it, and so they don't take in the pleasure of the audience? Or? That is absolutely true, and as my friends and I joke about it, we, we will typically go out afterwards and do a post-mortem of any concert, and go over the bad parts first, the things that didn't work out, and any time somebody gives a congratulatory point, you almost dismiss it, like, what do you know, didn't you hear that spot? And, and I think that that's one of the most damaging things you can do, but it, it's so easy to point out what didn't work, but what did work, you have, actually have to remind yourself and, and work to find those I think that's sort of natural because you get that from your parents, from your teachers. You you get the correction all the time, and so you've got that going in your head all the time of, oh, that could have been better. I just want to ask one last question to both of you, which is whether you think stage fright can ever go away, be conquered, and whether it should. Do you want it to go away completely? I don't think it'll ever go away because the power of how and how the musician wants to interpret and play is so powerful. I do think that it can be managed, and careers are not devastated because of stage fright right now, because of Enderon. I totally agree. I think stage fright is a good kind of process that you just have to learn to deal with, but the moment you don't have stage fright is the moment you just don't care anymore, and I think... uh, 
stage fright can be looked at as healthy. It means you're very passionate and you, you care so much about what comes out. Negative stage fright, where you're worried about what a critic might say, or if you're in an audition situation, you're worried that you might disappoint the committee. That's something that where I feel the beta blockers come in handy. But I don't think stage fright will ever go away, and I, I think that's probably a good thing in the, in the big picture. This has been Conducting Business. Our guests were Holly Mulcahy, who is now concertmaster in Chattanooga, and psychotherapist Diane Nichols. Brian Wise is our producer. I'm Naomi Lewin. Thank you for listening.